Welcome to Times Like These, the American Purpose podcast about current events and current ideas and the search for a new political center. I'm your host, Charles Lane of The Washington Post. Our guest today is Amanda Ripley. Amanda Ripley is a New York Times bestselling author, an investigative journalist, and you know, I guess everybody's got a podcast these days. <laughs> she has one on Slate. It's called How To with an exclamation point after it. She's the co-founder of an interesting company called Good Conflict that creates workshops and original content to help people get smarter about how they fight. We're going to talk a little bit about that as we go along today. But the main reason I invited Amanda on was to reflect with her on a superb essay she published in my very own newspaper, The Washington Post, on July 8th of this year, but it's no less relevant a couple months later, in which she confesses the following, and I'm reading from the piece. I have a secret. I kept it hidden for longer than I care to admit. It felt unprofessional, vaguely shameful. It wasn't who I wanted to be, but here it is. I've been actively avoiding the news for years. And Amanda goes on in the essay to explain why she's tuned out and dropped out of what used to be a pretty heavy daily consumption of journalism. And uh, her reflections uh, go beyond just her personal experience to talk about some of the science and data behind what appears to be a trend toward people who used to be very interested in the news finding that they just can't handle it anymore. And the theme or one of them of this podcast is how we're going to reinvigorate our political center, how we're going to revitalize democracy and public discourse here. And there's nothing more important to that subject, I think, than the role of the mass media and the news business. Um, and so Amanda, who has uh, this really fresh take on it, I thought was a perfect conversation partner for the podcast. And so Amanda Ripley, welcome to Times Like These. Thank you so much for having me, Chuck. It's good to be here with you. So you make this confession, and I, I guess you begin by, by saying, you know, like you really feel like you shouldn't dislike the news, but tell us what has turned you off on the news. Well, I noticed it slowly, right? It wasn't all of a sudden, but I used to read multiple news outlets every morning with my breakfast. And the news was just starting to like get under my skin. You know, I just felt so drained after reading the news that I was not very productive. And my job is a writer. I write books. I write longer magazine pieces. And so it was literally getting in the way of my, of my work. So I started shifting when I would consume the news to the afternoon and then the evening. And it was like I was trying to dose it and figure out like an opioid. You know, when is when is the right, right amount? How much is the right amount? Uh, and this went on for years like this. And I was mostly just embarrassed because I had always covered really hard, complicated problems, you know, terrorism, disasters, crime, uh, education. And it felt embarrassing to not be able to absorb all this news and still be, you know, functioning. Um, so I really struggled with it for years. So what's the part that you found disabling, so to speak, about being a heavy news consumer? Was it the substantive content of it? Was it just the sheer difficulty of keeping up with so many different events? 
what what specifically made yeah. it hard to consume news? I, I think it's a few different things that were happening at once. And so one thing that was happening was that the news was just bad. Like there was just a lot of bad news. Now, there's always a lot of bad news, but the lens, the camera lens of most traditional news outlets was all focused on some pretty daunting things, right? Um, the Trump election in 2016, where journalists like us suddenly seemed to have a lot less influence on half the country, which believed we were telling lies, right? So that was really depressing, right? If you devote your life, as you know, to trying to gather facts and be uh, tell stories and uh, have them land with impact, that was a hard pill to swallow. And then the pandemic, right? And then inflation and Ukraine and many other things, right? So part of it is that for sure. But I think it's more than that. And I think this is where it gets interesting. I think it is also the fact that, first of all, the news has gotten aerosolized, right? Like it's everywhere all the time. You can't contain it. You can't keep it in its rightful place. You can't, you know, read it with your breakfast and then go on with your life and, uh, not, you just don't know when it's going to ambush you. Like uh, it's on your phone. It's in, it's in the air. It's everywhere. Um, so that's part of it. But I also think that journalists themselves, some of them, not all of them, have gotten depressed. Like, I think there's a ton of research now that the more you consume the news, the more anxious and depressed you get, the more distorted your view of the world is, particularly uh, in politics, but also in other things, particularly with mass casualty events. I mean, there's just a lot of research now that if you really marinate in the news, which is the job of journalists, it will mess with your head. Um, And so I think there is a feeling um, that we don't talk much about, you know, that, that, there, there is a kind of negative bias in the news for lots of reasons that existed before, right, which you already know, um, and also fierce competition for attention, which we can talk about, but it, most people already know, right? But then on top of that is this, I think, reality that a lot of journalists are struggling. And, and the way that I knew it wasn't just me is that other journalists started to confide in me, friends, friends of mine, you know, would say, yeah, I'm really... I can't, I have trouble reading the news. And I realized it wasn't just me. And then, of course, if you look at this new Reuters Institute study, you see that 42% of Americans say they are sometimes or often actively avoiding the news. So uh, it may be that 42% of us have gone soft and are cowardly, or it might also be that, <laughs> that like, there's something, the way the news is getting delivered uh, and framed and what is what is news that is not actually very healthy for human consumption today. So there's a lot to discuss in what you just said. I mean, the first thing I want to throw in there is my own confession is that I can't handle the news at the volume I used to be able to either. And for many of the same reasons you articulate, which is that it's so pervasive, you can't seem to, you can't seem to, as a journalist and probably as an ordinary citizen, you can't seem to separate a part of your life that isn't about consuming the news from a part of your life that is. And I think that's a very astute point that you make. I would just validate your point that people have anecdotally been telling me they don't read the news anymore. Surprising people, by the way, I'm talking about people Mm. who, you know, some of them are judges, some of them own companies, some of them Mm. are, you know, prominent people in the community who would think would really want to deal with the news or feel a duty to. Hmm. I wonder on that point, though, about before we get into a little more of the data and the 
psychology behind this. Do people feel helpless? Are they being made to feel, it's not just that they're overwhelmed by the volume of the news, but when you combine the volume with the negativity, is it promoting a sense of helplessness among news consumers? Yes, I think that is probably my biggest complaint, right? Is that you're left, okay, I'm, I'm informed, which I do feel like I have a duty to be informed, right? Um, but I don't know what to do with it. And my worrying about Ukraine doesn't help Ukraine. You know what I mean? So there's a, yes. a bit of magical thinking, I think, that sometimes I've engaged in where it's like, well, if I can just feel bad enough about the latest school shooting, that will help. And that is just, you know, it's subconscious, that feeling, but that is just not the case. And in fact, we know that at a certain point, it becomes self-fulfilling. Like this learned helplessness means, well, why bother, why bother trying to fix guns in America when nothing seems to matter, right? Um, why bother, you know, visiting my member of Congress? Why bother voting, right? If democracy is in decline, you know, you, you take this to its natural conclusion and you feel so impotent, so powerless that you just give up. Um, and we can see this maybe most obviously with climate change, but I think with other things as well. And you know what? It is true that I individually cannot fix these problems, but I also think it's true that, and I'm curious what you think, Chuck, that, you know, Americans still have a great deal of agency. Having traveled to many other countries for my reporting, yes. whenever I come back here, I'm like, oh yeah, we still have, I mean, is our democracy flawed? And yes, it is. Um, but compared to a lot of places, we still have a lot of agency and resources. Um, yes. And honestly, when I go to, you know, India or Colombia or places that are much poorer, I still see stories of people finding agency, of people finding hope and dignity. Um, and those are stories that I think are really important to tell that um, that we need to live a full life. Yes. And, you know, you asked for my thought on that. And what I would say is the idea that underpins so much of what we do, it's almost like an axiom of mainstream journalism is if you just tell people the facts, yeah. they will do things with them to make this world of ours better. <laughs> and that's the axiom. I think we have sneaked in an unstated corollary, which is that you give people the facts like over and over again in the most <laughs> alarming way. That's what it takes to get them to act. And the fact that this kind of isn't working or mm -hmm. on your account may even be having a counterproductive effect, I think is like, it, it, it sort of explodes a lot of the assumptions yes. that guide journalism, right? I mean, yeah. I think you say in your piece, the journalist theory of change is the best way to avert catastrophe is to keep people focused on the potential for catastrophe 24 <laughs> seven. And, uh, I mean, just if you'll bear with me one more second, I'll bring in a piece of data that you and I were talking about before we went, we started recording. There was a really interesting study by the American Press Institute last year. It found that when they asked uh, people in a survey, is a good way to make society better to spotlight its problems, only 29% of people agreed. And I suspect most journalists would be very surprised mm -hmm. to find that. Mm -hmm. Right. No, I think for me, 
the person who articulated this was David Bornstein, who's a journalist and the founder of the Solutions Journalism Network nonprofit. And yeah, he he made this theory of change point. And, and I think it's I think the reason why I hadn't articulated it before is that we don't actually most journalists don't actually say this out loud. You know, we don't say, oh, I became a journalist so that I could change the world um, and and help people avert catastrophe. That Those aren't the words we use, right? We have this sort of passive, um, <laughs> passive aggressive uh, stance where we're like, well, I'm just, I'm just, yeah, I'm just telling stories here. I'm just reporting what happened right. trying to, you know, help people make sense of it. You do what you do, what you want, you reader with this information. I'm not an advocate. I'm not endorsing any solutions, you know, and, and I think there's, um, it's what I did for 20 years was kind of hide behind that, <laughs> professional ethic. But in fact, underneath that, of course, of course, I want my stories to change the world and make it better. I mean, come on, like, let's just be honest about that, right? And what happens is you think you can just keep screaming fire, right? And that people will be like, oh my God, the world's on fire. We should put it out. And increasingly, if it ever worked, it's not working now. It's not serving people. And I think there's a bunch of interesting reasons for that. But David Bornstein also said, you know, maybe we have to adapt the theory of change so that it's something like, look, the world will get better when people understand problems and threats and challenges, yes, and what their best options are to make progress, right? So he's not saying let's abandon the theory of change wholesale, but let's adapt it and evolve it based on how humans are actually behaving and what readers actually are telling us they need. Well, before we get to how to address that, I want to ask you your thoughts on this, which concerns me a lot, is what is the relationship, as you see it, between the fact that people are having this kind of uh, turned off reaction to uh, the sort of hammering on negativity that we're talking about? What's the relationship between that and a different kind of uh, uh, repellence, I guess you would say, toward the news, which is, oh, it's all just a bunch of fake news and mm -hmm. they don't tell the truth anyway. And, you know, that's that's a big drain on the media's legitimacy, too. But how do the two kind of fit together or do they? Yes, I'm so glad you asked this, because this is the mystery, right? Like, I always wonder what percentage of the the sort of loss in trust in rigorous, serious journalism is due to this, because there's a bunch of different things happening at once again, right? Like we can't really disentangle them easily, but I mean, you know, when a former president says that you are the enemy of the state and like constantly maligns you and demonizes you and many other politicians, meanwhile, and pundits and whatever, that, that is obviously part of how we got here. And if it's true, what I'm arguing here, which is that the human brain is not designed for this amount of threatening information to be coming at you in, in, the, in the way that it is in, in modern news, is part of so many people's rejection of rigorous journalism to do with that. In other words, are people going to just look around? Some people are avoiding the news. We know that four out of 10 Americans. And then some people have found other sources of news, which are bogus, right? Or right. largely propaganda. So is that partly because of that? You know what I mean? Because they're trying to get up in the morning. Now that doesn't excuse any of it, but it maybe helps explain it. It's like a defense mechanism. It's, it's a way of saying, look, 
I actually do believe this news and it scares me so much. It makes it painful to believe in it. Therefore, I'm going to say I don't believe it. Right. And luckily now I have infinite numbers of uh, conflict entrepreneurs and propagandists and con artists online who will give me very compelling content to support my intuition that this can't be right. You know what I yes. mean? So yes. that's new. That's a new thing. Not brand new, but it's been new for the last, you know, 15, 20 years. So so I think it, the most extreme case of this might be um, school shooting deniers, right? Like, again, not excusing this behavior. It's horrific, right? But it's like, if we don't start looking at the psychology of what's going on here, it's not going to get better. It's going to get worse. And part of it is it's impossible for my brain to take in these stories of little children getting massacred yes. in school. Like I just can't, I can't live in this world. So there's different ways to react to that. Right. But one way is to just believe the, you know, these con artists who are telling us it's not true. Well, you know, there's an, a, a counter argument to that. I'd like your reaction to, I mean, with respect to the school shooting, some people have argued that actually we're, we're, we're sugarcoating the school shootings because we don't actually publish images and photographs and, and <laughs> maybe even video of the actual carnage that if we sort of ramped it up a little more then that would finally break through it, I take it <laughs> your perspective is that that would just that would be kind of an exercise in futility I mean yeah again like let's look at what we know about humans um, <laughs> like let's go back to what does the research say about how humans respond to terrible news one of the most interesting, places that I went to to learn about this was not journalism, but um, people who train physicians to, for how to communicate bad news, you know, that right. they might be dying, right? Or there's no treatment. Right. And at no point, now they have similar and interesting parallels in their, in physicians have, and look, they're still learning too, but it was really interesting to, to talk to the people who do this, who have done it for decades. They have a problem where patients will just not hear them. Like there was a study where a bunch of people get told they have terminal cancer and they go home and they just carry on. Like they just right. literally almost forget. <laughs> and so, right. uh, or they'll Google it and be like, actually there's a trial in uh, Brazil that if only you would let me do it, you know, and they'll kind of come back with a lot of questionable information, just like readers and audiences do for journalists. Uh, so they have some interesting uh, and similar problems. At no point is a physician like, you know what? Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to show you a bunch of graphic photos of what your body's going to look like when you've been ravaged by this disease. And then, then you'll believe me. Right. I mean, this right. is like crazy that we, we, we really are misreading human psychology so dramatically, right? Like it's kind of wild. Well, it isn't that you are saying, on the other hand, well, we need to present a happy, positive. <laughs> right, 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 right. You're, no, you're not no. saying that. As I understand what you're trying to get at is we have to somehow find a way to couple the, you know, the tough, hard facts of life with clear explanation of how people can cope and or even improve the situation um, you know, in, at a human scale. I mean, of course, if you, if you tell somebody, for example, well, all the glaciers are melting, uh, the only solution is a carbon tax. 
um, that, you know, there's some truth to that. But a person might want to say, well, you know, I, I can't go up to Capitol Hill to lobby for a carbon tax. So what can I do? And I'd like to hear you talk about some concrete options that you have seen that work in the media along those lines. Because to be honest, Amanda, I don't see us doing very much of it in the press. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. No, I'm so glad you said that because it's a it's hard to convey this point without people thinking I'm saying, oh, we should sugarcoat the news. Right. Um, I, and interestingly, it's, it's mostly a small percentage of journalists who think that I found it's like most of like viewers and consumers of the news. Like, I really kind of get this and have known this for a long time. So but let me let me just address that. And let's take the school shooting example, because it is so awful. Right. And it, so I'm not saying we don't cover school shootings. Right. I'm not saying that. So then what are our choices? Well, I'd love to tell you a story about um, which did not make it into the piece. But I, I thought it was I thought it was a good example to answer your question about, well, what now? Um, one of the places because I've been, you know, casting about trying to find news outlets that are really kind of trying to do news in a way that is like fit for human consumption, that where we can take it in, but also have enough hope and agency to actually try to make the world better. Um, and one of those places is the Christian Science Monitor, which was not a place that I used to read. But for various reasons, due to their own history and values, they've been doing this for a long time. Um, they've been trying to write stories that are about big, complicated, wicked problems in the world, all over the world, and not cut any details that might give us a glimpse of hope, a glimmer of agency or dignity. Right. Um, so, so let me tell you the story about Uvalde. So after that atrocious, horrific uh, school shooting in the Christian Science Monitor newsroom, they had their story meeting the next day in Boston, and it felt like a funeral. You know, everyone was just despondent. They felt helpless. How can we see this happen over and over and not feel powerless and depressed. And at that moment, the managing editor, a woman named Amelia Newcomb, walked into the room and she reminded everyone why they work there. And she said, we exist to interrupt this spiral and to say, yeah. no, there is a way forward. We're only stuck once we decide we're stuck. And after that, all the story ideas started to flow. The staff created a special issue dedicated to that tragedy. So they weren't looking away. You know, there right. were stories awash in despair and also laced with hope. Uh, and they wrote in the Mark Sappenfield, the editor wrote, you know, in his intro that this is unacceptable. And the monitor's job is not to prescribe solutions, it's to show they are possible. And continuing to live with the slaughter of children is not an option. We can do better. So that's an example of what this might look like. You know, you use the phrase low ego, high curiosity journalism. And uh, at the risk of uh, saying something that applies to myself, that's a big problem uh, in, <laughs> in modern journalism. High ego, low curiosity <laughs> journalism seems more prevalent. And frankly, you know, I'll plead guilty to that as somebody who loves having his own opinion column where I can spell yeah, my Yeah, me views. too. Yeah. But I, but I also think, Amanda, we've set up a reward structure, an incentive structure in our business that makes people, I have had young journalists tell me they need Twitter, for example, to establish a personal platform or a personal brand. You mm -hmm. know, I'm talking about people, and that's sort of the way social media is constructed. Mm -hmm. um, how would we, I, I love your anecdote about the monitor, by the way, 
but how would we internalize low ego, high curiosity journalism as a value? Yeah, that's a great question. Cause I think, um, yeah, we haven't, we, we have designed a bunch of institutions, including journalism, uh, to incentivize high ego, low curiosity behavior, right? Um, social media, Twitter, you mentioned, uh, politics, journalism. So we've got things a bit upside down right now. And that makes it harder for sure. Like, it's just, this is a great time to be a narcissist in the United States <laughs> right? and many places. Um, so, but I do think there's a hollowness to it that we all feel like there is a craving to want to do this differently. So then how do we set up different norms, different cultures, different incentives so, so that more newsrooms are like, the monitor, right? Where they have these, this is who we are is basically what she said, right? Um, and so there's a different ethic of service as opposed to, um, you know, glory. And, and again, I plead guilty to this as well. And I think much of my career was powered by trying to have the, you know, the, the story that got the most attention, the story that got the most space in the magazine, the story that had the most clever turns of phrase. And I can just speak for myself that over time, that has really lost a lot of its appeal for me. And I don't know if it has to do with getting older or just the way the world has changed, where those things just seem empty. Like, it's just absurd to be, <laughs> to be playing the same game when the world is changing so fast. Um, but part of it is that I'm not in a newsroom every day, so I'm not subject to the same incentives anymore and, and culture. So... I think part of what you do is try to raise up um, leaders and editors in particular who are low ego, high curiosity people. And I think you and I have probably had editors yes. like that and you can feel it like it is a different like it is just a different thing. Right. Am I right? Yes. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Well, the great late, great Fred Hyatt, who was my mm -hmm. editor here at The Washington Post, epitomized that. And he was somebody who had, you know, he came up the old fashioned way. And I know this is what a 60 something journalist like I would say, but, you know, Fred started out the old fashioned way writing about local news in Fairfax County, Virginia, and he climbed the ladder. I mean, if I were to throw in my two cents, it would be that we really do need to restore some sense of progression to a journalistic career where your first job is going to be a job where you have to come into close contact with the grassroots of society. Um, you know, your first job shouldn't be writing about um, what the Supreme Court got wrong. Um, right. <laughs> and, and, but anyway, that's just the curmudgeonly me. I wanted, before we, we're, we're, our time is limited. I wish it weren't. I want to talk to you about your book, High Conflict, and, you know, the work you do about social conflict and how it relates to what we have been talking about so far. As I understand your, your work on conflict, you have been uh, trying to educate people about this, this idea of high conflict as a, as a kind of all or nothing spiral that creates mutual demonization and ultimately leads to violence in the worst case. First of all, Elaborate on that for a little bit and then tell me to what extent you see this kind of news coverage that we've been kind of griping about. How does it relate to the, the, the growth of high conflict or how does it encourage high conflict in, in, in our country? Yeah, no, I mean, this is the reason I started writing high conflict, whatever, six years ago was because the coverage of our political conflicts 
was no longer interesting to me. Like it was no longer enlightening. Uh, it didn't make me feel curious anymore. Like it just felt repetitive. Like we were stuck in like the Groundhog Day version of American politics. Um, and I felt like there has to be a better way to understand conflict. So I started following people who are immersed in conflict in different ways than journalists, right? So, you know, peace negotiators, gang violence interrupters, uh, psychologists, divorce lawyers, rabbis, you know, you name it, who are very intimately acquainted with conflict, but in a different way than journalists. And what I learned is that there was like an entire understory of conflict that I was just not covering as a journalist that is the most interesting part. So what I mean by that is, you know, most deep conflicts or recurring conflicts have the thing they seem to be about. Let's say yes. it's, you know, um, taxes, right? And, right? Or the deficit or any number of things. Um, and then the thing they're really also about. And those are usually the same things, but they're very rarely talked about. So it's usually about power and control, respect and recognition, care and concern, uh, fairness, authority. There's certain deep values that people assign to bigger debates about Confederate statues or vaccine mandates, whatever. And that is the most interesting part of a conflict. So if you're not getting to that understory, you can easily just really lose what you care most about to this vortex that you described of high conflict. And you get stuck in the us versus them adversarial mentality, which by the way is, you know, also part of traditional journalism, yes. thinking, thinking that every story is Watergate all the time. Uh, and you know, you, you kind of miss this whole rich understory of the conflict. Um, so for me, that's now what I do is like try to, shine a light on that deeper understory and everyone I've followed who got out of high conflict and into what we might call good conflict or a healthy kind of conflict, they often started by getting very curious about what is the understory here for me and for my opponents. And for what is the, uh, I, I mean, I think I, I read your uh, sort of the potted summary of high conflict and, and there were, there were certain things you list. I hope I'm getting it correct that that help to reverse or or tame a high conflict, rehumanize, recategorize curiosity and wonder, right? And those they're yeah. kind of self-explanatory uh, things you can do. But I think what they all include is not viewing the other as an other who's just sort of this crazy black box full of stuff you don't like, but instead might possibly be also a human being like you if you were to check it out, can we take that strategy and, and, and incorporate it somehow into the practice of journalism? Because journalism, as you rightly note, it's all, it's all about conflict. It, that's what we cover. Yeah, it's interesting. Yeah. And, and we should cover it. When, right. when there's a war between Russia and Ukraine, that's a conflict that we need to talk about. Anyway, I mean, it's kind of a long-winded question, but I wonder if you have thought about how journalists might incorporate these concepts without betraying, you know, the sort of fundamental obligations that we have. Yeah, I've thought obsessively <laughs> about it. Yeah, so uh, with my uh, colleague, who's a broadcast journalist, Helen Bianduti Hofer, 
we've created a kind of curriculum that we have now trained hundreds of journalists on where we go in and try to really break this down into methodologies and tools and skills. And some of it is, you know, asking different questions. And literally, we have a list of questions that we give journalists to ask, particularly in conflict, to get at something deeper. And actually, the Richland Source, which is an interesting news outlet, it's very sort of innovative on this stuff. They recently used those questions to interview J.D. Vance. And you can you can see it online. It's interesting. Yeah. I think it was yesterday. But uh, Richland, Ohio. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so a lot of the innovation is happening at the local level, which is cool. Um, but it is it is, you know, has yet to reach the national level, as far as I can tell in most places. But anyway, yeah. So we kind of break it down into skills, um, a, a skill called looping, which is a way of doing kind of deeper listening to the sources that you're interviewing. But also, to your point, changing who we're focused on in the story. So I think if you're trying to get out of that binary, that false binary of like good versus evil, black versus white, Democrat versus Republican, which is at this point just really boring in addition to being inaccurate, um, you want to try to talk to different people and ask them different questions and listen more deeply. And so we have like a sort of archetypes of sources that you that you want to go to when you're covering uh, conflict in particular. But one is is the the changed source. So somebody who's you know, used to believe in QAnon and doesn't anymore. Yes. Like what happened there? That's interesting, you know, and yes. it rehumanizes them and it makes it like you revive curiosity. And the other is the um, unsure source. So most yes. people are unsure. So there's internal conflict about say, you know, abortion or any number of things, right? They're not sure. And if you ask, if you poll them, they'll ask, they'll answer the question differently on different days, depending on how you <laughs> word the question. That's yep. interesting, you know? And so can we, you know, we recently in a training showed a clip of um, from a Canadian TV station that was doing man on the street, you know, person on the street interviews, the oldest, you know, most predictable kind of TV journalism. But it was about this ice hockey stadium that was reopening during COVID. And what did people think? Was it risky? Was it good idea? Bad idea? And they kept in the clip. You know, these are very quick clips that TV news uses. This, you know, this couple and the couple, they were literally what they said was, well, you know, I think it's great because it's it's important to have community and to have fans in the stadium. And we really we have to live with this thing. And also, I'm not sure, like it might be reckless because people are eating. So they want to have their masks <laughs> on. And, and then the, the wife was like or the girlfriend was like, yeah. And also, I just don't know what to think anymore because it changes every day. Right. I have a hard time keeping up with it. And it just like. It was beautiful because it was just all this complexity that they were able to hold. So why can't we? Yes. And, and one, one thing we don't do a good job of covering in journalism is ambivalence. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but I bet you there are many, many, many more people who feel ambivalence than feel certitude uh, in our society. And yet the people with the certitude are the ones who uh, we tend to go to uh, for our sound bites. Well, you know, one thing I'm quite certain of, Amanda, is that I haven't had a more interesting conversation than this one in quite some time. And I feel like we could go on all day, but we're limited in our time. And, uh, you know, the, the role of the mass media in our democracy is changing so rapidly. And uh, I think we don't quite have enough high quality thought to go along with that rapid change, but you are certainly to my mind, one of the people who's doing some of the highest quality thinking about this issue. And so I considered it really a privilege to have you on the podcast. 
And I'm so glad you were you were able to join us. Well, thank you, Chuck. I really enjoy the conversation, too. And thank you for what you're doing to try to open up some space for conversations like this. Thanks, Amanda. 